Hey, welcome to Steve McGrath's Basecraft. Yeah, so this is it, the final episode of the year, the Christmas episode. Uh, I just want to say before we get started with the episode, it is live this one, so I was at Owen's house, um, so it'll be a little bit different to other ones, but before we start, just want to say thanks to everyone who's supported me so far, especially everyone who bought the t-shirt, because that's after paying, paying off some of the stuff I invested to get the podcast started, the mics and whatever other things I needed, lights, all that jazz. So um, thanks a lot for that and uh, just for subscribing and sending me messages and just being engaged in the whole thing. That's been awesome. I hope in the new year to maybe do a kind of a, a ones to watch series. But uh, I actually blitzed it the last week and recorded a bunch of episodes. So I'll be getting them out before I start doing this ones to watch thing. But that's good because it gives you time to send me a message and um, tell me what bass players you think we should have on. Um, obviously, don't just nominate the lad in your band. Just nominate a bass player you think is going to do good things in 2021 right and uh, yeah i just want to say have a great christmas and a great a great new year i know it's it's a strange one but like what can you do we're all in the same boat myself i'm not really going to spend much time out here in the shed i'm just going to chill out in the house and um light the fire and just enjoy that side of things i, I might invest i think i always kind of invest in one or two courses a year i don't mind spending money on things like that so i did uh buy the gary willis course a few years ago the sbl course that he did with them and uh, yeah it was worth the money i learned a lot from it it was really good but just you can you can any of these courses they actually offer your money back if you don't like them so the pro it's worth a punt on one of them just get you kickstart your your uh learning in january this year i don't think i'm going to pay for like a base course I, i'm going to do something to do with like producing in your in your workstation trying to get a track finished because at the moment i have loads of ideas but i can't finish them and um i just i'd love to be able to do to, to do that better like produce a track so i might do some project like that in the new year and i'm sure that will give me the the kick up the arse to come out back out into the shed and start working at it again so yeah this episode is with owen o'neill and um, i recorded it in person in his house in turles and i have to say thanks to jev from the band uh, from my band um for coming up to help us as our assistant he did a class job because there was like three cameras on the go and mics and bass di's and all this stuff and i never could have done it without him so thanks a lot for that jev and um link down below to his profiles he's busy educating and doing other project as well so yeah we had owen came on and um you must be familiar with owen he's one of the definitely a legend of the irish bass scene He's played with Moving Hearts, he's toured in Riverdance with Celtic Women and uh, of course he did five albums with Chris Rhea over in his career and um, he even played bass on Driving Home for Christmas so that kind of ties in with the Christmas episode. So we covered a lot in this and it was great crack because he had a bunch of basses out and near the end he kind of told me that he has loads more basses in the house that I didn't get to see so we might have to do a follow-up we're just looking at the bases so um don't forget to subscribe on your podcast app and of course on youtube because that really helps me out because the more engagement the podcast is getting the more it gets pushed in front of other people who are interested in this base related stuff so yeah anyway sure let's just jump in with Owen, and i hope you really enjoy the episode and i'll talk to you soon hi there how's it going great and we were uh, chatting about this base before we came on here. I, I don't know the brand at all. What is it? MTD? MTD, yeah. It's um, uh, Michael Tobias Design, it stands for. He's um, he's a bass maker. Um, he has his 
he has his, as he calls it himself, his shop, which is uh, just a small workshop in upstate New York, near Woodstock. And he goes back quite a long way. He originally made his own bases under his own name, Tobias Bases. And that was back in the 80s and maybe the late 70s even. And a, a lot of funk players used them. And um, so he eventually, he was living on the West Coast and he sold his company to Gibson and couldn't make guitars for a year or whatever the deal was. And so he moved to the East Coast and set up in Kingston. And he started making these. I got one, I bought one, in a shop in New York called Rudy's, where everything was very expensive. And um, I loved it. And um, we made contact. I was playing with Riverdance at the time. And we made contact. And I now have six or seven of them. And um, you know him personally now, anyway. Yeah, he's but I, everyone that uses his his basses kind of knows him personally because he's on towards retiring now, and his son David is um, making most of the basses. But there's only two of them, and uh, I can't remember the third guy in the workshop. And they just most stuff is made by hand. Mm. But, um, that's why they're they're also different. This one particular one was originally uh, made for me as uh, a fretless and um, I asked him to make me a bass which had no rare woods in it and this is what he <laughs> came up with it. it looks like it has some <laughs> rare woods put into it but yeah well must I, have sourced I, them somewhere he, I, he, it's okay but the fretless neck God. so they're they're absolutely identical I could just take one off put the other on mm. mind you you'd need the these as the ladies in the traditional circle call them the twirly things. <laughs> You'd need the, the twirly things yeah, on to get it get working. But, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I don't think there's another of them. Uh, I think there's only one that has two necks. Yeah. Uh, however, I'd like them. And what draw you, drew you to his uh, bases? Is it just a it's, feel of them? It's a long story. Uh, well, it's not. I'd be playing Music Man bases all my life. There's one there to your right, which I don't know whether you can it's see. The, it's the most well-worn in music man I've yes, ever seen. I, I, I bought that in 1978. And um, yeah, most of my work has been, has been played on that instrument. And yeah, it's shown the signs of it. Um, I, sorry, I got to a point where I wasn't able to lift it anymore. It's just too heavy. So I'm going to have to get something lighter. So I got a 20th anniversary model of that, which was lighter and very nice. I went to New York. I was playing Riverdance again. We went to Los Angeles. And some guy from Music Man came into the show. He said, oh, you're playing the 20th anniversary Music Man. I said, yeah, I love it. He said, is there any chance that you'd make me a five-string version of this? And I said, he said, Oh, I'm sure we would. Why don't you come up to the factory? So I went up to San Luis Obispo, where Music Man were. And um, when I arrived there, I discovered that the man who had been at the Riverdance show was actually a senior volunteer. And they were in there helping with the making of plectrums. So um, he said, oh, I'll just put you in touch with our, um, our artist uh, representative and he'll talk to you and I'm sure there'll be no problem. There was absolutely no chance 
oh no, we don't make file string versions of that. No, we just put trees into a machine and the bases come out the other end, which is the way it had become yeah. at that stage. And it was a pity. So I kind of fell out with them and I got in touch with Michael and he made me that one there, which I asked him to make me something that sounded like a big Fender jazz bass, uh, which it does. And I played that for a long time. And that's about it. I've been playing them since. Mm. You're unusual that most players, uh, session players, I see play a P bass, but you're playing a lot of active basses. Yeah. Well, I I don't know most session players. Um, it seems that the uh, the Fender basses, uh, I never really played Fender basses. I had a few. Uh, I had a, 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 originally a jazz bass was the first proper bass that I had. And it, it was like a tennis racket, unfortunately. Um, so eventually I got rid of it and I bought a Rickenbacker, which wasn't like a tennis racket, but it sounded like one. Um, and uh, after that, I eventually bought the first That Music Man. And it suddenly, that was it. Because they were the first kind of real active bass. So they were the first thing that you could actually really wind up mm. the treble and the, and the bass on it. And the, the, they were just different at the time. Back uh, in the day, it must have been a bit of revelation, how, how loud they are compared huge. to the Fender. They, but they still, I, I mean, it still holds its own with any other active bass. And there's only a tiny, the, the preamp in it is only the size of my thumbnail. <laughs> you know, but it's whatever way it is, those old ones, they really are great. Yeah, it must feel great to play anyway. It's well worn in at this stage. So. Yeah, it does. If I take it out and play it, it feels <laughs> great. But I mean, that's the trouble. You, know, you, you, you can't play all of them all the time. No. No matter how much you like them. Nice to have the collection, though. <laughs> well, it is, I suppose. Yeah, they're... They, they all have stories attached to them, mm. you know, which is kind of, you end up finding it, you know, getting very hard to try and decide you're going to sell them. You know, I, oh, I think I'll get rid of this. <laughs> no, you, you take it out then and oh, you know, I can't sell that one really yeah. just yet because it's um, letting a child go or something. It, yeah, well, you remember each one of them in some ways has, like that one has more stories attached to it than any mm. of the others, but each one of them has a story to tell they've seen a lot of shenanigans over the years yeah on that, one's, tours. that one's seen a lot of action that music man <laughs> yeah but uh, not all of it great but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> however i mean that's the way it is we we can maybe talk about some of those stories yeah at some stage but you're a tip man originally i was under the missed uh, information that you were from a dub but you're a full-on tip man i am yeah wearing the jersey and everything um no it's it's um I was, I've never moved very far from where I am now, but I mean, when I was whatever, 24, 25, I did, I moved to Dublin because of what I was doing at the time and kind of stayed there for a lot of years. And eventually I decided, look, I'll come back down and I'm in this house since, and that's 16 years ago now. Mm. So it's, um, yeah. I've always been a tip man. And you formed Moving Hearts up in Dublin. That's when with the original you're one of the original members. Yeah. That was um that was the kind of the the second biggish thing that I was doing. There was a band before that called Stagley, which was based in Kerry. It was a funk band. Cool. And that was um I was in that around the towards the late seventies. 
and uh, I wasn't cool enough, so they dispensed with my services. Um, so I went back home and I decided, okay, that's it now. I'm going to 78, it was, because I just bought that place. And uh, I went home and said, right, I'm going to stay here now. We had a shop for Footcross near Cashel in Rose Green. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll just run the shop here and it'll be fine. I lasted about six months and then I started playing the bass again. Mm. Oh, this is nice. And at that point, it changed from playing with a pick to playing with my fingers. I had always played with the pick up to then. Um, so <laughs> it was a bit of a learning thing for me and I'm still trying to learn it. But uh, I was in the shop one day and just out of the blue, I got a call from Christy Moore. He said, Declan Sinnott was saying to me that you might be interested in joining a band that we're are playing with us in this idea we have for a band. And uh, I had played a bit with Declan in Cork when I was in college there. And he, I said, yeah, sure. So I came up and played at a thing called the Muggs gig, which was in the Bagot Inn. And we, the band slowly extended. And eventually, about six or nine months later, became Moving Hearts. And that was the most exciting time, I think, mm. that of, like, and that's a long time ago, that's eight, 1980, but it was very exciting at the time. The sound is exciting, like you're mixing a lot of genres in the band. Like. Yeah, it was new. It was certainly new to me um, because I had been, all my stuff that I had been interested in was American music and mostly like soul, soul music, funk music. Not a whole lot of rock and roll and a bit of blues. Yeah. But it was extraordinary like the, that the introduction to Irish music, as in like trad tunes and stuff like that, was it completely opened my eyes. It changed mm. my whole life. And, you know, the, the band was, it was just great fun. And it had massive energy because we were excited. For several reasons, really, we were excited because the music was great fun to play. And we were also excited because we felt we were saying important things at the time. Yeah, the lyrics are great as yeah, well. There was a lot of turmoil in, in both in the country and in the world. And we felt we were commenting on this uh, honestly. Mm. And, you know, that made it really special to play. That's true, especially it wouldn't be that common. Like, well, fusion bands often don't have lyricists anyway. Or so no. And you had, so you had the music and you were putting out a message at the same time. It was great because it, like, the basic thing was that Christy had these songs. He had been, but Planksty was just winding up at the time and the songs didn't suit Planksty. You know, it wasn't that kind of music. So the idea was, it became what Moving Hearts is, but the songs were there, you know, which made it all the easier for us in a way, because all we really did was interpret what Christy had mm. already. And in some ways, we found it very hard uh, to to follow it, to follow the first record, because it was, then we had to try and find new songs. Yeah, and as was, a group. As a them. group, mm. rather than having, here are the songs, we're going to play these songs. And it, it actually became difficult. Really, yeah. Yeah. And we didn't make, we only made the two albums 
really until 1985 to where we we then came back together and did the instrumental album which is called the storm and that one is kind of what we're still playing you mm. know we we have occasional we have mick handley sings with us sometimes as a guest but the band is an instrumental band as such I was watching you doing a song called MacBrides on YouTube and you were oh, yeah. doing a bit of slap bass, which was pretty cool to see in a trad music. In, um, yeah, that was a simple, no, it was an easy enough part that, but it's, uh, it's where it sits, I suppose, within the thing is, is, but I, slap bass has like been something people say, oh yeah, you're very, you're good at that. And actually I'm not, um, I'm hopeless at it, but because the first, the first time I heard slap bass, I didn't actually see the guy who was playing. So I didn't know how he did it. Mm. So I had to try and figure out, well, how did he do that? So I developed my own way of doing it. And, and actually, it turned out that it's close enough to what the guys do. <laughs> Wait, do you remember but what I, player it was you heard first? Yeah, doing I think it was a was guy called Pops Popwell. It was Crusaders. It was okay. a Crusaders thing. And it was like, it was, a, it was a, one of this. Like, That was the basic figure of it, like, yeah. and it was just, it was just dead funky. But that was the way I figured out well, that it have to be done. In fairness, you've, you're doing the tom up the way, which is the modern way of slapping. Is it? Yeah, because right. <laughs> uh, I learned with the tom down, like, yeah, the, like this. And it's actually you can't slap as fast. You can't do a double tom technique. So everyone is trying to learn with the tom up. Are days. they? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great, dude. Like that. Yeah, that's the modern yeah. way of doing it. Yeah. Because uh, Louis Lewis Johnson, you remember? Yeah. He was like thumbed down and hitting That's it really right. hard. And Larry Graham. And Larry Graham. Yeah. But everyone these days is doing Marcus Miller thumb yeah, up. Thumb up. That's, and so yeah. you can do a bit of double thumbing. That's right. Yeah. So you were ahead of your time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where my time is. But um, yeah, that's the way I heard it. And it was funny because I, I was playing it on Rickenbacker. And the rest of the gig, I was playing with the, this Tiger band. I was playing with a pick. Except for this one track, which mm. was called My Mama Told Me So by a band called the Crusaders and that was this guy. Yeah. With the going. And, and this is the way I figured out how to do it. And I I, I kinda got a reputation for it, which is definitely not deserved. <laughs> um so I stopped doing it and uh I I'm kind of losing the technique now. Mm. I I like what you were doing. You you were doing kind of a lot of percussive stuff as well in that McBride song you were kind of hitting a lot of dead notes up along the neck so as well as oh slapping, yeah which was nice. Mm. Like, that's just something that I do. It's like, it's kind of an idea. And it's, this is crazy. But one of the ways I think about playing is that I try and create a groove on my own. I know it's impossible. It's like trying to come in on the one without any counting before. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just that you've got, you got a lot of stuff going on in between the beats. And you kind of end up like with the, uh, I can have it here. But it's like, supposing you're doing a swing shuffle. And it's just, instead of being... If you go... And it's all the, this stuff and the racket that's going Pushed on in between. Forward. It gives it some sort of a thing. I don't know what it is. It means something to me. Yeah. But it probably doesn't mean anything to anybody else. <laughs> But it's worked anyway. You got you plenty of gigs. So. You got a few gigs, yeah, yeah. Uh, and right. do you have any? I suppose the, the area of playing bass in trad, you would be one of the 
top people that does it like so is there any different approaches to, to take when you're playing with those tri- in that tried style on the base like um well i i have to give up a lot of credit for what i do to donald lunny because being donald okay he claims that he didn't know anything about rhythm sections uh but he does mm. uh, and he pointed me in certain directions, which then I ran with. And it's one of the things is to try not to play too much. And you also have to be aware of the fact, especially if it's if it's uh, Bill and Pipes or something in the band, that it's if the tune is in D, it's D. So you just have to find your way around playing yeah. in the key. And usually the best thing, what I found, nearly always works you just play the big downbeat and then just leave the space for for the percussion and mm. stuff you know it is um it always works in that you i suppose you, you'll get away with it yeah <laughs> but i mean you can be very fidgety and start getting involved in melody and stuff but in a 13 piece band hey, just play the fundamental yeah and, <laughs> you know the odd orchestral note here and there you know, it works very nicely as well. You know, just put in something instead of playing, like if the thing is in D, you might maybe in the B part of the tune, you might play an A against it or something. And yeah. it just gives a different, a different color to it. But basically it's all very simple and it's just maybe learn the rhythm of the tune and try and stay within it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's what all I've, all I've ever done. Well, it works anyway, and you you did the for the ballad. You often get the fretless out. And uh, yeah, I, I, I a few little bits, not mm. a lot. Uh, I used to play a lot more on fretless back in the in the days when I was playing with the Hearts, but it wasn't a Fender. It was an Ibanez musician, which at the time was the bass that Sting used to play with the Police, mm. and so I had a fretless one, which was terrific. It had a great sound, but it's gone the way of some other ones it's it's i think it's now a fretted bass in well, cork one that got away <laughs> yeah it did but most of the stuff i did and the, back then was on played on that and um it just had a, a really hard nosy kind of sound mm. and they, they were great but i mean i find the fretless is very expressive in some ways but it's hard work yeah you yeah. kind of have to keep your chops going. Yeah, you, you need to play it all the time. Mm. And I know I heard a story one time, I don't know whether it was true or not, but that uh, the great Pino Palladino, who was famous fretless player, yeah. he, he, I think he's playing mostly fretted bass now, but I'm sure he could still turn a trick on the fretless. But he, he was um, somebody that was, I think, worked with them in one of the bands he was in, might have been Paul Young. And um, when he was playing all that lovely high stuff on the fretless, and he said he just used to have his tuner on all the time. He just look, he would really, yeah. he'd, he'd be keeping an eye on the tuner. But eventually, of course, he wasn't looking at the tuner. You know, it's just that was the way he got his head around the mm. fact that, but he 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 knew the intonation perfectly. Yeah, well, some of the sound comes from being slightly out of tune or yeah, well, move, move, moving to the note. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see a lot of people are doing. They do an exercise where they have a fretted bass and a looper, and they'll play a line, and then they'll plug in their fretted, and they want to double the lines. Yeah, to get the perfect intonation. Yeah, same, I, same thing. But I've done. It. I've done that. <laughs> that. 
<laughs> we didn't have a looper though. Well, apart from ourselves, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I've done. Yeah, two two bases are very nice together. Sometimes, if you play, usually I do it the other way around. I play on the fret first, mm. and then I overdub the fretless on it. And you don't use that much of the fretless, but it's there. It seeps out. Yeah. And I think the important thing, I don't know, is that you should always err on being slightly flat. Mm. You can be slightly flat on the bass and it won't be noticeable. But if you're sharp, you'll really hear it. (laughs) (laughs) They'll all be looking at you. Again, just to my ears, you know. uh, I'll always, on a fretless, I'll always slide up to the note rather than slide down. Mm. You know, uh, sliding down doesn't work anyway. You can't slide down. Can you slide down? No. <laughs> well, you can, I suppose. But however, yeah, that's that's the the way I see it, and it's um, it may be right or it may be wrong. And you've a six string as well. That's a bit of a, a beast of a thing. That thing there. Oh yeah, that's um, I bought that um because of a bass player called Anthony Jackson. Yeah. Who I thought was absolutely the bass maze. He's a monster bass player and a monster man, <laughs> and um the. He used to play one of these, and I saw one in London, uh, and I had to have it, so I bought it. And uh, that was sometime in the early eighties, maybe no middle eighties. It's a it's this was made it was made in nineteen eighty one, I think, and I love it, but it's an awful handful. Mm. Like it's very funky. Like the sound of it's very funky. We might hear it. Later. I might play a little bit on it. Um, I might play a little bit on it now, actually. Yeah. It's a slightly different tone to the other one. Hmm. What do you find more useful? The, do you find the high C string more useful or the high B? Well, the low B or the low B. Or the, the low B is would be what I I play more. Like the five string is a low B. The C sometimes if you again this is like fretless. If you're going to play a six string, you have to play it all the time. Because what happens if you panic? This becomes a G. Oh yeah. Suddenly you're playing everything at a fourth or up mm. than you want to. But the thing about it is, it's very nice if you, and if you're thinking about say a, something that's a little bit uh, expressive or something, you know. It really sounds great, that bass. But it's kind of funky as well, isn't it? If you want to... It's very clear, the sound. It is, yeah. It's it's an extraordinary yoke, but it's just... Like, look at the, my, my, I can't, my hands are not that big, mm. but I mean, I can hardly reach across the neck. But the thing is, once I play it, I get, I, I kind of get used to it. Mm. But the danger, if you're trying to play in a normal position, which you'd be there, like, like you should try and play on the four, four middle strings, mm. which means it's a bass. Yeah. You know, like, 
And then you've got the top one. If you, if you want to, you know. The top one is nearly a, as thin as a guitar string. It's it is. Well, it's, it's a, I think it's a 28 mm. that's on the top of that, which is, which is, it's, it's um, light enough. Middle four strings that the top one sometimes gets in the way. Or <laughs> because, like, I don't know, you, you're kind of used to going. Across the middle four, and whereas on a five string bass, your, your top string is still the G. Mm. So it's going to feel natural. And then you've got the extra notes at the bottom. Yeah. But on this, the top string is the C. So it sometimes becomes a problem. You have two things to think it, about. It gets in your way, yeah, and it makes muting a lot more difficult mm. as well, because you have to think about stopping the B going, which is one of the, the troublesome things about mm. playing like big basses. Yeah, well, it's hard to even find a five-string yeah. or a six-string that has a good-sounding B-string. Yeah. Because it doesn't ring true a yeah. lot of the time. These ones are like, um, but the thing about them is, and this one actually is, is very pure. The yeah. whole way up. It's not floppy sounding. The, the low B. No, it's not. And it's if you can. But you see that I think the problem with them on all of these that I call them big basses is that once you go above the position that's that the E, once you go up higher, it's to do with I think with the size of the string. Mm. The note becomes a bit floppier. Mm. You know, it doesn't kind of have. Won't have the same punches it has yeah. down there. Like it, I don't. It's this is starting to become a bit spinal tap. Um, <laughs> do, 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 do you still um, practice like as much as you used to, like transcribe songs and stuff? Or no, I I I, I, I practice. Yeah, um, it's funnily, I I um, I come in here some days and I play a lot. Mm. I don't learn songs as such. Uh, I don't really transcribe music as such, but I love when someone sends me something like uh, a song, maybe that I'm going to play and um, I'll spend ages just figuring out what I think is nice mm. uh, for this. But when I was like, I suppose younger, um, my practice routine was didn't really do scales or exercises or stuff like that, which of course I should have done and wish now that I had. But what I actually did was I played along with records. And the thing I tried to do, not necessarily learn what the bass player was playing, but learn the feel. Like if the record had a particularly great feel, I'd play along with it. And I mightn't play the part that the guy was playing it would be an approximation of it. Mm. But the main thing I was trying to learn was why it felt so good. You know, and, and that was my routine, hours and hours Brilliant. every day. You know, mostly old Motown records and stuff like and that. Actual re vinyl records spinning some, around. Some vinyl records are uh, in the early days of the Walkman, mm. just stuff and but just play away. And 
it was great. Yeah, yeah, that's what was the foundation of your playing, that period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the fact is that I didn't know anything. I had no kind of formal music education, which I'm a thing I regret. Um, but the thing about it is that I just played along with these record, records I liked, mm. you know, and uh, I just tried to learn, like, why does this feel so good? And eventually some of it has to rub off on you. You know, if you spend hours and hours yeah. when you're supposed to be at lectures, um, my poor mother and father, God rest them both. Um, I was in college in Cork, studying very hard English and archaeology. Um, I already knew English. I was able to speak and archaeology. I, I'm old now, so that's okay too. <laughs> but uh, uh, I didn't really do a whole lot of it, but I played the bass a lot. That's good. Uh, <laughs> well, I don't know whether it was probably or not. the best thing to do. It could have been. Maybe it's probably more useful than a degree in English and archaeology. Yeah, I mean, I'm not no common. <laughs> However, no, that's just what happened. It was. Uh, I went from there to Stagalee, uh, absolutely convinced. I didn't like. You know, there wasn't any question. This, I knew I was the best bass player in the world. At that point, I didn't think it. Brilliant. Nobody had told me, but yeah. I just knew it. And I was 19. The whole world was opening <laughs> it's up. It's very uh, Jacko of you. Because <laughs> yeah. reading Jacko's book, he <laughs> yeah. tells everyone I'm the best in the world. Well, so. he probably was. He probably, you well, see. he had you in Ireland <laughs> saying you were the best in the world. Yeah, well, I, 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 I pared that down after a little while. And then I decided I was the best in Europe. Um, <laughs> because there was no kind of hear any great German bass players. And suddenly I got my eyes opened when I went to Europe. And uh, was... Uh, Suddenly, I was wondering, yeah, it's like Ringo Starr. John Lennon once described him as, he said, somebody asked the question, is is Ringo Starr the best drummer in the world? John Lennon's answer was, hey, he's not even the best drummer in the Beatles. You know? (laughs) We have Jeva as our assistant here today. He actually is a fan of Ringo's drumming. So am I. So am I. Yeah, absolutely. Because nobody else can do those fills. No, they're really weird. Yeah. Left-handed drummer, yeah. Playing right-handed. Yeah, that's oh. why they're back. Is it backwards? Oh, oh, the toms are all screwy, yeah. Okay, right, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. But you were, you were the musical director of uh, Riverdance, though, so you were saying you had no farm, but that's a f- serious job. I had it in, um, I had a lot of it in my head. What does that entail, being a musical director like that, of a, such a big production? Uh, policeman, <laughs> basically. Just keeping everybody, everybody knew what they were supposed to do. It was an amazing band, you know. The, the first band, the band that played the original uh, run of the show. I didn't play on the Eurovision. Um, well, it was the orchestra. A couple of guys who ended up in the band were in the orchestra that night. But when we did the first show in the point, the band was going across the front line. Was um, Davies Balan, Martin O'Connor. Maura Brannock, Kenneth Edge, uh, a guy called Nikola Parov from uh, Hungary, amazing player, and Des Moore playing guitar. And the back line was Desi Reynolds on the kit, Noel Eccles on percussion, and me, and a guy called David Hayes, who was, who was the musical director at that stage. And then when we moved to the States, David didn't go, and the mantle fell to myself and Noel. I think probably because 
I don't know why, but who he seems to be popular at the bass player is the MD in the band. I know Leonard Cohen's bass player was the MD, and yeah. I see it a lot. Yeah, is it something to do with the bass, his personality. Maybe you have plenty of time because you have to play so few notes. <laughs> <laughs> Keep them in <laughs> tow. Time to listen to the others and see what they have. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I um, as as far as being like a traditional classic music director would be, I was hopeless at it because I mean. Okay, I'd know if somebody was playing the wrong notes, but um, I mightn't be able to tell them. After, oh no, that's a, an A B flat C or da, 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 whatever it is. Mm. You should be playing that run instead. You know, that's something really that keyboard players do, in that they can see the score, they see yeah. the whole thing, and oh no, it's it's this. Which is why in most of those like shows, like Riverdance was re- was a show, as such, and. It's it's mostly the keyboard player, and also the fact is that the keyboard player can take rehearsals on his own rather than having the whole circus in there and trying to round him out of the pubs and, and whatever <laughs> else yeah. you have to do. So there was it was a lot of I did a lot of police work. It was a big tour. You you toured a lot though. You all over the world, like yeah. Once we got going, the the first show, the big show, which was the one that had Flatley in it, um, we uh, we toured. 47 weeks of the year um, in big venues uh, that it was phenomenal like I mean it was just it was terrific you know mm. but like it was just also you know people will say whatever they want to say but it was fun to play yeah. I mean Bill the music is great you know there's some of those tunes are, are very crooked and <laughs> they don't sound like it you know, until you actually start trying to play them. Mm. Yeah, and it I, just becomes like a so- normal it song. It just becomes a song, yeah. and you just fit your, your part in and out between it, and it's not... Um, if you start thinking about the time, you're immediately in trouble. <laughs> but you won't you be know? grooving anyway. You, you won't be grooving, no, you'll be just, just like counting in your head. It's like it's something that's... It's, uh, it's kind of like... Uh, as Vinnie Caliuta once described something as the anti-groove and that sometimes if you have to really count in your head to stay with the music it kind of becomes the anti-groove yeah the best rock bands who have songs in weird time signatures are the ones the musicians don't know anything about time signatures but yeah. they just happen yeah or are, are this uh, people like the oh sure what's his name Dave Matthews mm. like some of those songs are in seven and, and uh, Sting songs like seven days in five and uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's all that kind of stuff and it doesn't feel like it mm. you know because they Sting just wrote a song exactly yeah and it just happened that's the way it was when they over intellectualize yeah. it then yeah. it becomes an exercise in showing off nearly. yeah yeah because there's one one two three one two or is it one two one two three you know it's <laughs> a, that's five Whichever way you look at it. But uh, when did the, the the session thing kind of start for you? Was it, uh, I saw, I was reading in your bio, it was kind of around the Moving Hearts period. Yeah. Because I was wondering how the Chris Rea connection started. You did a uh, bunch of albums with him. I did, yeah, I did five albums for Chris. Um, another great time, really interesting time. And um, yeah, Moving Hearts finished. I've always been kind of lucky in that I, drift from one gig into the next one kind of seamlessly until now <laughs> uh, 
but the, none, of uh, none, of us, none of us are drifting into anything no. at the moment. Uh, but the, um, I was doing a few sessions, a good few sessions, I suppose, when I was playing with Movin Hearts and did a lot of um, singers, for some reason or other, singers liked me playing on the records, maybe because I just kind of didn't take up too much space apart from physically. Um, I was much, I was a bigger man then. <laughs> but, uh, they, so I did a few albums, did two or three for Mary Black, and I did a couple of others around that time. And then we decided to put Moving Hearts to bed in um, 1984, I think it was. Yeah, that sounds about right. And but so we did one final gig, which I think was called The Last Reel, which was tip the cap to the band yeah. uh, uh, for the last waltz. So we decided we'd call it The Last Reel. It'd be great. <laughs> it's a good name. So we did the gig anyway, and it's terrific. And it turned out it was part of a thing in Dublin, which was called Festival Folk, which uh, for some reason, unknown to anybody, Chris Rhea had been playing at the night before. So he had the hit at the time, I can hear your heartbeat. Mm. And um, he came to the Moving Hearts gig and he said to the, his manager was with him and he said, I want that fat guy. <laughs> and I got the call the next day and I went to London and we recorded Shamrock Diaries, which was the first album I did with him. And the, like, it was a band. It was a great band. I know I keep saying that every band I was in was a great band. It wasn't because I was in it. It was just that they were great players. The keyboard player in the band was a guy called Max Middleton, who is no longer with us. Uh, but if you are familiar with Jeff Beck, like there's a terrific album by Jeff Beck called Blow by Blow, and Max is the keyboard player oh, on that album. So I was really into that album. We used to play a couple of the tunes from it. Uh, Self and my brother, we had a band, and um, the uh, so it turned out Max was in the band, and I was like just blown away. He's fantastic, but we did, um, yeah, we you know, we toured a good bit, we did a lot of stuff, and great fun. And um, I think the most memorable moment of it was we were actually in Berlin the night the wall came down. We were, uh, we were playing the following mm. night. We had come in. We'd come in a day early, for whatever reason, and we had to drive in. Or I don't know whether you drove or flew. It was the same feeling anyway. If you drove in, you had to drive through East Germany to get to West Berlin at the time. So it meant you had to drive down what they called the corridor, which was absolutely surrounded by police cars trying to catch people speeding. Um, and um, so the revenue for the East Germans. Uh, so we got into Berlin. We had a, a night off. The following morning, we actually had three days. The following morning, we were told, it's great news. The promoter has organized a special trip for you guys to go through Checkpoint Charlie into East Berlin. And this is great. Because all we've only seen East Berlin in spy movies. Uh, so we all went through. Charlie into East Berlin and we were in there walking around and my greatest memory of it was that it smelled like a giant lawnmower 
because of all the cars were all two stroke those Trabants. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And it just smelled like a lawnmower. Wow, this is weird. So we're in front of the Brandenburg Gate and Chris is standing there. And he's looking at the wall and he's looking up at the Brandenburg Gate. I knew what was going on. Like he's looking for the hook line mm. for his song, of course. So I said to him, well, he said, not a sausage. And so we went back, had our dinner, and suddenly the wall was coming down. So we went down. There was another band in Berlin that night called the Christians. And we went down in the Christians bus and we sat in their bus drinking beer, mm. watching the people come over the wall. Nice. It was amazing. Like it was just people were mad with the joy. Euphorically. Yeah, it was just brilliant. You didn't get a chunk of the wall as a souvenir. No, I wasn't going out there under <laughs> any circumstances that night. <laughs> did David, no. David Hasselhoff performed on the wall that night as well, didn't he? He did. And that's yeah. another story from the same from the same band. We were doing some huge, big um, TV show in Germany in some sort of a big arena. And he was on it. He was a big star in Germany. The, yeah. The disco thing and all that. But he had, uh, he had this jacket. I hope he doesn't sue me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he will. He had this jacket that used to light up. You know, kind of like a Christmas tree. It used mm. to light up and, and singing, giving it all the... Mm, mm, mm. Great. But he had to share a dressing room with the Chris Rea band, which looked like an international darts team <laughs> at the time. You know, so well, a lot of us were, we weren't small. Uh, he- but, <laughs> uh, we were healthy, yeah. We had a healthy appetite and a fair thirst. Uh, <laughs> but um, he came into the dressing room and he called security. He wanted security in there all the time. He thought we were going to steal the jacket, which was like, like why would any of us were basically wearing tracksuit bottoms and t-shirts. Yeah. Why would any of us want to jacket Get laughed that, out of turn that, that, walk in with it. <laughs> so that was the other. That's Yeah, I didn't realise he had played on the wall. He was there that night, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, that must have been, the, we must have been, that's why we were there for the extra day, but we must have been doing that TV show that <laughs> afternoon. There you go. That's right, there we go. It's nicely connected. That'll do. <laughs> Very good. Uh, and do you remember, I was, it's Christmas, this is going out, and do you remember the session for driving home for Christmas? No. Do, doing that? I, I remember a, a later version that we did. To be honest with you, I'm not sure at this stage which version is played <laughs> on the radio. If you're on the one on the radio or not. Or not. But it's the same part. Yeah. And it sounds like me. And I get the rap for it. Well, that's so, the main thing. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, I played it. Uh, actually, you know what? I must have been on it. I can't. The first be, version. Be, you think I, you might have I, been I must have been on it because, like, when I, we played it the second time on an album called A New Light Through Old Windows, which he called a rehash through by Focals himself, which was a kind of a greatest hits. But yeah. we played it again in the middle of the summer, sweltering hot day <laughs> in the casino in Montreux. And uh, so we, that was a, basically that album was it's actually a very, it's a decent album and was recorded live. Cool. It was the end of a tour. The band went into the big studio in Montreux and we just set up as we would have on the stage and just played the gig. And, it turned out really well, mm. uh, but it's definitely on that. But like, I mean, driving home for Christmas when it happened. Did, do you remember like around the time the inception of the song? Like, obviously, yeah. you, ne- you couldn't know it was going to be such a. He didn't a, know. He was thinking of giving up at the time. Music altogether. Yeah. 
he's thinking of going back to the ice cream business. I heard this that <laughs> rumor like yeah. that he was. Oh, he was at the going, end. Wasn't he going was, well. Like. He was at the end of his wits. He had like he had done loads of records, but you know it was just kind of it wasn't happening. Mm-hmm. But uh, out came this thing, off it went, and suddenly we're doing six nights in Wembley at Christmas because the thing is a huge hit, and uh, we had. We did six nights, but we were there for seven nights because the Pogues were booked in in the middle of the week to do a gig. So we had to leave the Pogues, have their gig. Yeah. So we had, we did three, then did the Pogues, and then we did three more and went to the Pogues gig. It was absolutely brilliant. It was <laughs> so good. After, good after session, I'd say. Oh, I know, I didn't go to that. We had to play the next day. <laughs> but um, it, still it, been was, after the session. it was terrific. Uh, it was a, they had, the set they had was Everything it was all giant furniture, mm. and uh, there was a giant fridge <laughs> in one corner of it. And every so often during the gig, Shane would go into the fridge and close the door. The rest is history. I, had, I said, God knows, <laughs> but but he was certainly cool. Mm. Put it that way. <laughs> but the yeah, we had this, we had this thing. Sorry, this is the last silly story. I know the stories are good on. Yeah, like we, we had the we had this giant. Santa that used to inflate behind the stage. The rest of the gig was a normal Chris Rea gig. And then, bum, 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 bum. Off we go. Mm-hmm. And up would inflate Santa <laughs> behind the stage. Most nights. But, uh, when he was feeling up to it. <laughs> when he was feeling up to it. So, anyway, it was one of the nights Santa failed. And we, could, we couldn't see this because we were all facing forward, mm. as you're supposed to do. And um, so he got about two thirds of the way up and went back down again. <laughs> and suddenly the punters, we used to take ourselves reasonably seriously. And the punters are all falling around laughing. <laughs> like 7,000 of them falling around laughing. And they make a racket when they do that. And suddenly somebody said, kind of pointed out, here was. Santa at the back of the stage, like he definitely reduced circumstances. <laughs> so that was grand. But we had this other thing as well. This is the end of the story. We, they, we used to throw out these Santas, which were big. They were eight feet, mm. eight feet tall and like big inflatable things out into the audience. And they'd like balloons, they'd bounce them around during yeah. the song. You know, it's great, fantastic. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll get them back, you know, it'll be fine. They never came back. Of course like, not. <laughs> they were going out into the bus after the gig one night, and there was two guys cycling down on a bicycle, going down along uh, Fulham Palace Road or wherever they were going down along, with one of these Santas on their shoulders. <laughs> I thought, it was stupid. It was great. Yeah, you did, you liked the touring then from from the stories you're telling. You enjoyed the lifestyle of being on the road, like it yeah. is, even though it's hard physically. It is hard. It isn't really. People always say that old oh, terrible tough life. Yeah, it's I think if you're for most of my life on the road, I didn't have any real connections at home. I wasn't married. So I got left wherever I was living, got on the plane, and off I went. And I did that for a long time. And it was fine. So it was very easy for me. And then suddenly I was married and it's become slightly different because you're thinking not so much of the fact that you're 
going away and what you're thinking of the people that you're leaving behind. Yeah. And, you know, will they be okay? And of course they'd be okay. They'd be much better off in most cases. But yeah, um, yeah that kind of comes into your head and then it becomes more difficult to go. But the thing is, once you're gone and two or three days into the tour, then you're back in that mode mm. because that's what you've always done. You're in that world. You know, it's a, and it's, it's a different world. It's an mm. enclosed world. And time moves very fast because you never really stop. If you're doing enough gigs. Yeah, if you're doing like no. We, we used to, I always felt that like one of the shows, a Celtic woman show that I did for 13 years was, I think we played about seven months of the year. Four of it in the States always the start of the year. Mm. And um, the day off became the enemy because invariably you would end up in somewhere like Toledo, Ohio, or something like that. Sounds great. Yeah. Or Amarillo, Texas, which are two absolutely lovely places. <laughs> um, but now it's like suddenly, how are you going to put down a day in Toledo in the middle of February? It's like, yeah, you know, and, and you're Irish without getting in trouble, and you, without getting in trouble. And there's only one bar called Max that you can go to. And Max was a bass player or, or a drummer, I'm not sure, but it was a jazz bar and it was great fun. But if that wasn't there, you'd be sunk. But you very rarely got a day off in the big cities. Mm. You know, you have a day off somewhere nice. That's Where, it. You never get the day off the place you want to go and explore. The place you want to go, yeah. It used to happen to us with Riverdance. Because in the early days, we'd be like five weeks in Radio City. So once the show was up, then every day is a day off really until seven o'clock, which is the show call. Mm. And you could have New York well explored in five weeks. Um, and it was the same in some of the other big cities. And that was great and very enjoyable the first time around. Yeah. Touring has changed over yeah. the years as well. Like it's there's the margins get smaller, so people can't tour anymore. I don't know. I I you know there was when we toured a river dance, we always flew because the company was too big, and so we'd fly uh, between the venues. Um, but with Celtic Woman, we had four buses, and it was four sleeper buses, and okay, we'd get hotels. But we still have the buses, and that was the best way to do it, because we were doing mostly single one night stands, and we do maybe six shows a week, uh, which would be two probably on a Saturday. Um, but it was um, once you got into the routine of it, it was fine. Mm. Like the biggest thing that could go wrong was the catering was bad, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and the rest of it is just. You know yourself. The rest of it is just routine. Well, well myself, Jeff, who's helping today, um, we're still in the three lads in a van stage. So, <laughs> but <laughs> that, it's the same thing. It it's is the same. Just yeah. on it. It's just that you don't have all the paraphernalia. Like I mean, we guys joining the tour on the tour for ten years before you know you get someone new would mm. come in into the choir usually and be um. Lads, what's the story with the coolers and the bus, you know? The beer and the coolers. Beer and the coolers. It's free. And I say, of course it's free. That's our bus. That's our beer, <laughs> you know. They drink it. And then they drink it all. And the sound check isn't great the next day. But 
The novelty wears off that after a while sure too. Like free beers. Free beer. Yeah. We always get it when we're on tour in Spain. That's <laughs> yeah. before they even say hello to you. They have cervezas out for everyone. Very good. And Spain is a great place to tour. They love music yeah. there. They really do. Yeah, they do. Brilliant place. We did a lot of some other shows up in Galicia with Moving Hearts. We like that beer, yeah. Galicia and Estrella Galicia. Estrella Galicia. That's good yeah, stuff. Yeah, that's good stuff, yeah. to get a glass of water yeah and this uh, is it all right Owen said he wants to try out his his first proper ba- bass he ever bought I suppose it sounds class be part of my brides the moving hearts Sounds great, love it. That's actually an A part, it's not a B part, really. <laughs> your slap technique's very tidy. You're not, you don't go out with big, huge slap to kind of keep it tight to the, the base. I am very greedy with mean with it, Jeff. I don't, I don't wear out the strings. You know? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, what are you, any projects you're on at the moment? I think we were discussing on the phone. You say you like, you're always writing, you like to be doing. We're doing pieces. bits and pieces. Um, you know, it's. I have been doing stuff with Mick Hanley, you know, not not writing but playing on Mick's songs, and for the last few years we've hooked up again, and it's great, and we do it in Gaff Studios, um, but we also have a project going ourselves, which is um, with uh, three other musicians. There's only four of us in the band. And the guy, Joe Gallagher, who owns Gaff Studios, is also a partner in the venture. And um, we've been recording Irish music, basically, uh, which doesn't really feel like Irish music as such. They are tunes because the the band is Kieran Tourish, who is a a fiddle player who played for many years with Altan, and uh, James Delaney on keyboards, and a drummer called Kevin Malone. And we've been putting a slightly different slant on familiar, maybe some familiar tunes, some tunes not so familiar, but it's, um, I think it's interesting. And in the next, hopefully, if we ever get to meet up and take a photo together as the three guys live in Dublin, so it will appear uh, on a website at some stage. And I think we're going to call the band Jex Grove. We don't know why, but that's why we're going to call it anyway. <laughs> so yeah, if so, fancy looking out for that. Um, it's, a, I think it's interesting in that it's not, it's not the way that people kind of see traditional music. In that, it's not moving hearts. It's kind of maybe we'll have similarities. Well, we'll have to have, I suppose, because I'm in it. And 
I only know one way to play and it's going to be that way. And, but it's not like normal. A lot of the modern trad bands, now, this is not a judgment or anything, but I feel a lot of people play some of the music, not all of it, but play some of the music too fast. And it's like, I think because the guys are just too good, you know, they just, they just have stunning technique. And we've kind of deliberately tried to play the music too slow. And it's, uh, Put it, back. It, has, it has kind of come out in an interesting way. Mm. And we've had fun doing it. You know, it's a labor of love. It's, we've been doing it for over a year now. And we kind of, I think we have about 42 minutes or eight pieces of music. Mm ready to go so we're hoping that if we're allowed to meet up and get stuff done that we might try and let put it up online or something cool. see if people like it sounds good as any kind of interesting bass parts on it are you doing any of this slap or uh, lead parts or no it's mostly it's mostly big grooves mm. and it really works not the bass i'm I really don't think about the bass. I just do what I'm going to do. It fits the song kind of. And I, but what it is, it says only four of us. We treat the fiddle as if it's a voice. So its position in the mix is where the voice would be. Yeah. It's not like part of it rattling along with mm -hmm. a trad band. Uh, so it, some people will think it's too loud. <laughs> uh, but because there's only three of us, mind you, I, I tell a lie. We did have Anto Drennan in. Uh, as well, who played across all the tracks, and mm. we we took some bits and pieces that he left us uh, too much stuff, and we took bits of it, and he's there. But basically, there are very few overdubs. That is just the four of us playing in a room together, which is what I really love. And I think we were talking about it earlier, and it's. It's why I started playing music in the first place. And it's something I really miss now because one, we're not allowed to do it because of uh, this unfortunate um, restrictions of COVID and stuff. And, but that'll pass too. And I'm, I'm positive about that as well. And, you know, but I really missed over the, the number of years gone by. Like music has changed recording of music I think has changed when I started playing first there was nothing other than whatever the band was be it five or be it six that could be accommodated by whatever studio you were playing in all together in the room playing it was a different kind of pressure uh, in that it really mattered if you made a mess of a track if you made a mistake mm. it really mattered because, okay, the very good engineers in the big studio, maybe you could drop in. But the fact that you're all playing in the room together probably means that you're spilling onto everybody else. Yeah. And um, so it becomes a problem. But it was a type of pressure which in some ways has kind of gone away uh, from recording because uh, now with, with modern stuff, with Pro Tools and whatever else, you I mean, the pressure to get it right the first time is not exactly there anymore mm. because it's always a question of, yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, yeah I, 
you put your hand up and say, listen, I did a bit of a something there. I think and you lose something though when you punch in too much. Like if you get a, f- it's nicer to get as much of a yeah. full take as you can. Like. It's absolutely, I think it's vital. And you know, in some ways, again, it's, you can still do it. You can still, I know done tracks recently or where actually you will play the thing. It feels great. But it's kind of a bit all over the place because everyone is still learning the song. Mm-hmm. And but somebody's like usually, hopefully, the drums. The drums are absolutely it. That's it. They're nailed. You can then drop onto the drums. Yeah. And it'll still feel better. Have the energy from the take. From the take mm-hmm. because you will you will still remember what it felt like mm. to play it when you should. And it's kind of if you even if you replace everything except the drums, it still sounds better than starting with the sequencer. Yeah. And sequencing everything. Or people turning up on different days, which happens quite a lot now. Mm. You know, I, I most a lot of the work I've done, not that I've done a whole lot, in the last few years is has been like that. Where I'd get a call, go to the studio, and it's just me. And the engineer, mm-hmm. maybe if there's a producer, the producer, and you go in and you play on what's there. So it means that you kind of have no input into the creative side yeah. of the music. You know, so it kind of doesn't, in some ways, it doesn't really matter unless people are looking for something specific that only you can do. Mm-hmm. And like these days, there's very little that everybody, you know, yeah. there's, People are very good now. The players are better, yeah. you know, so they're all able to play like everything. And it's, but if, if you're in the room with five guys and a guy comes in with a song and you've never, maybe never seen him before, and there's a song and you make out whatever chart you were able to follow. And sometimes it's very funny if you, if you have five guys inside in the studio and no one is reading music and compare five people's charts <laughs> that just won't make any sense. Yeah, it's just what scra- people, chicken scratches. But that yeah, what people write down that makes sense to them. Yeah. And it's like, but I think it's a feel that, that you, you kind of can't recreate it. Mm. You know, it's, I don't know, like people tell you, oh yeah, well, you can program in this, this into the drums. It'll make them feel lazier. You set the snare off two frames. Yeah. So the snare will feel lazier. And, and it's, yeah, it will. But it'll feel lazy in exactly the same place every time. Yeah, it's just not real. Like. Yeah, it won't do that lovely thing that I remember thinking one time. It's another of these crazy ideas that I have. That American bands will slow down going into the chorus for some reason or other, just marginally, mm. because it makes it feel bigger yeah. when it's just a, it suddenly gets more relaxed. Whereas we've always tended to speed up going into the chorus because you get excited. Mm. You know, and, uh, but apparently Irish ba- Irish players do it as well. Because uh, the la- last year, the year before, we played at Glastonbury with somebody. And um, it was uh, a guy from Marty Pello. Wet, wet, wet. He was, he was on the same. We were in the tent mm. and he was on the same day. And um, they were listening to us. And he's from, he's Scottish, and but he was able to to tell the sound guy 
that this was an it was an Irish rhythm section. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Never heard this before now. Neither did I. But for some reason or another, it maybe it's to do with our the traditional music or something. Mm. But he said, and also of course he's Scottish, so maybe. But it was he he seemed to think he was able and he was right, of course, it was an Irish rhythm section. Yeah. But we thought we were speeding up. And <laughs> <laughs> But you're more like the American. I mean, the older course. we, the older we get, the the the, the slower we speed up. <laughs> that last one is a tough slog of a festival to play as well as yeah. it, it getting around. It's it's pretty difficult. I I hadn't been there for a long, long time. We were there. I th- I think we played there with with uh, with Moving Hearts at some stage. Uh, one of those days that I can't remember much about. Um, <laughs> we played on the. What's the thing called? The pyramid. pyramid yeah. yeah, we played up there. Must have been like two o'clock in the afternoon or something. Oh yeah, it's, right. it's okay to disappear into the night as long as the gig is over. Pouring rain. And it was. Um, yeah, it was okay, but uh, it wasn't. But um, like I was there last year, maybe, and I was. I was. I was horrified at the size of it. It's scary, yeah. Yeah, it was just like, whoa. I, well, I was there, I met one of the farmers who rents out the land. He was, That's right, they have it. It's a thousand acres or more, even. Yeah. They're thrilled with it. Yeah, he's thrilled. <laughs> he actually had a stick and he had 40 wristbands on the st- every year. Oh, on very the good. Stick. Yeah. He was very proud of that. Yeah, that's a, it's a, it's certainly, and it'll probably be going for another 40 years now. I don't know whether they'll do, they probably won't be able to do it this year. Probably not. No, I think it'll keep going because the big name acts usually cut their feet because they want to play Glastonbury. Yeah, that's right. Now you've got um, moving hearts are still you're back together anyway. You yeah, reform. we we hope we hope to play. We're not going to play very much. We play as much as we can, or as much as we're asked to. Really, it's a very big band. There's, I don't know, it's, it's a twelve or thirteen of us in the band at this stage, and um, but it's something we all really enjoy. And um, once it gets up ahead of steam, it's. Uh, it's a terrific kind of, it's a terrific thing to be caught up in. And that's basically the, the only way I can describe it because it has such a head of steam that yeah. you're caught up in it. Um, you're better than, you're bigger than the sum of your parts. If you get together. Well, yeah, we hope. But the, um, yeah, we were supposed to play uh, a few shows this summer in the concert hall, which we did uh, the year, last year, I suppose. And um, they were really nice. We enjoyed it. And we said we'd do a couple more this summer. And um, then, of course, uh, COVID intervened. So there were no gigs in the concert hall. But at the moment, I think we're penciled in for August 2021. So we hope it'll go ahead. Hopefully, yeah. Yeah. And hopefully we'll all still be alive, um, which is to enjoy it. (laughs) (laughs) And are there any um, bass players at the moment you're listening to, or is it you're still listening to like some of your favorites, like Anthony Jackson? And I'm listening. To what I always listen to, you know, it's like, um, to be honest, I don't listen to a lot of music, mm. which is a pity. I wish I had like uh, a little bit more drive to listen to music. Uh, I know very little about what's happening currently in the bass world or in, music world. In in any world, mm. really, I suppose. <laughs> but yeah, in the music world, uh, I kind of lost faith. In, in the music, as a, I suppose when you're on the road for 20, 
23 years, which I was between Riverdance and Celtic Woman, uh, you don't have time to listen to music. So suddenly you go from being the guy that's in the music to being the grandfather of the guys who are now in the music, mm. you know, and it's like kind of, oh yeah, it's like bands that are now kind of people I see on TV. I actually, and this is my fault, not theirs. I actually don't know who they are. I don't know the players. Like I don't know. I only know people of my own generation, if yeah. you like, and maybe the next generation, like as far as say Irish players, bass players and stuff are concerned. Like people of my generation, there aren't a whole lot of us left. Uh, but like say people like Paul Moore, Keith Duffy, those mm. people, I would always see them as the next generation. Yeah. But now there's another generation after those who are fantastic players. Mm. Um, and I actually don't really know them at all unless I come across them through something like this, like yeah, we're yeah. doing here, or someone gets in touch with me and says, you know, can I come down and I'm thinking of buying one of those MTGs. Can I come and yeah, have a look at it? And mm. and usually that turns into a very pleasant day where we take out a lot of instruments and we have fun with them, <laughs> which unfortunately we're not allowed to do now. Right? No. Which is a pity. But, uh, yeah, you have a class collection anyway. But there's more, there's, there's a lot of more zany stuff uh, than those. Um, but uh, we'll leave it for another day. Yeah, I'll come back. I'm going <laughs> to come back, I'd say, and take pictures of all your bases if you want. That'd be cool. You could do, yeah. Get some nice pictures. Yeah, absolutely. Right, sure. It was well, I'm delighted you came on. Appreciate it. This is our, my first ever in-person interview. Well, I've really enjoyed it. Thanks. Do you want to play a little bit for us out? That'd be class. What would I play? Anything you want. <laughs> Thanks again. You're great. Great to have you on. That's how it goes. Yeah. Actually, some of that I used to play with one time. We shall remain nameless. But our initials are Flo McSweeney. And still, to this day, we, we occasionally speak. But Flo's thought that when I did this, the reason that the, the tone changed is that I was fanning the strings <laughs> with my hand, <laughs> uh, which I'm actually not. And no, I'm bent. 
Bend in the neck. <laughs> bend in the neck. But it doesn't. You should have played into that. Kind of looks to- like that. <laughs> told her that is how it works. As she still thinks to this day. Um, no. <laughs> Not true. Not true. Anyway. That's nearly libelous. Stuff. <laughs> right. Nice. No, sounds great. I love that. Yeah, you probably haven't picked it up for ages now you're no, remembering how I much haven't you like played it. it. I haven't played it for, I'd say, over a year. I'm delighted to how good the strings are. Yeah. Some uh, stain on it. Oh yeah, it just keeps going. And this is the difference. This is why when I got this, uh, all the other bases paled into insignificance. Yeah. One, because of the... like. Yeah, okay. No, that's uh that's pretty much full of everything. Like the the bass and the tr- on the top end. But that's that music man sizzle that mm. they say. But in reality I wouldn't use that much of it. I'd use more of that. Just a little bit less sizzle makes it a little bit funkier. Yeah, it sounds know. great. Yeah, it's a nice old thing. I'll leave it out now. <laughs> <laughs> give it a bit of air. <laughs>